the National Archives podcast series. This talk is from our Big Ideas talk series and is called In Their Own Right, Welfare, Discipline and Pauper Agency in the 19th Century. It was presented by Dr Paul Carter and recorded on the 12th of December 2017 at the National Archives, Kew. Right, okay, so, uh, <coughs> uh, first off, um, thanks for being here, and second off to the research team, thanks for, for inviting me to come and talk about this. Um, it, the, the, so the seminar series is, is, is Big Ideas. I've got a big title, and the reason behind that is it, it's going to do a number of things. So, in their own right, as you will find out, is a major piece of research that we're going to do over the next three years. Uh, and its title really indicates what comes next. What, we, what we're going to be working on is what did the poor in the 19th century feel about the welfare offer from the state. And that historically has been quite difficult to do, to try to get to the bottom of what the poor thought about it. There's lots of archives created by relieving officers, by workhouse masters, by the legislators. Historically, it's been thought there's not a great deal that the poor wrote uh, in regard to this in the new poor law. So part of the title is to try to kind of indicate that that's something that the project is going to challenge. And we're going we're to say there's actually quite a, a big archive uh, that the poor created. And it's a big archive that's come to us. It's in our collection. We... We have those. The last part of the title around welfare and discipline and pauper agency is really the prism that we're going to look through this afternoon to look at that agency of the poor, the fact they're writing their own letters, they're making their own criticisms, and they're setting forward their own demands uh, in regard to, to welfare. Now, <coughs> as Anna was saying, this is now going to be a uh, a major piece of research for us. So the research project is in their own right contesting the new poor law 1834 to 1900. So that sets our, our limits up, the chronological limits. It's a, it's a collaborative research project. We're doing this with the University of Leicester and ourselves. That's the collaboration. And it's funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. They've awarded the project £820,000 uh, and we're, we're really grateful for that. It allows us to do this. Steve from uh, the University of Leicester will, will lead this as the principal investigator, and I'm the co-investigator on the project. We start in January. We run for three years. And if you had to put it in a, a nutshell, what that project really is around is kind of a welfare history from below, the pauper's view, the poor person's view. <coughs> now, we could... We could set out some kind of theoretical assumptions here and then slot in some of the pilot work that we've done. Forgive me, I aren't going to do that. We're going to move straight into the collection first, then we'll have a look at some of the, the theory around this and some of the records management around the collection. So we're going to start with one of the letters, one of the pauper letters. Uh, and here we have uh, a letter... And it was sent from Warmgate, part of, part of York, part of the city of York. Uh, and it's sent in 1859 
down to London, down to the central authority in London, and I'll talk a little bit about the setup here of the central authority in London. Poor relief had not always been a, a centralised part of the state, but from the 1830s it becomes much more aligned to that. So the letter is sent in to London from Warmgate, and this is the letter, and I'm going to read it out in full, because I think it's worthwhile getting to grips with how intimate the source that we're going to be talking about is. So, Warmgate, York, January 1859, to the Poor Law Commissioners, gentlemen. I beg to apologise for troubling you with this note, but my reason for so doing is because I have a child, upwards of five years of age, whose limbs are paralysed. She was born in that state and has no use whatsoever of herself. She cannot talk, nor anything, and is likely to be a burden as long as she lives. And, as I am but a working man, I have not much to stir on. Therefore, I beg to ask your own advice about applying to the Board of Guardians, that's the local York Guardians in York, for a little support for her. I wish to know if they can take her from me. I have not yet applied to them, nor do I intend to until I have your advice on the subject, as I am willing to do what I can for her. I have now been out of employ for some weeks past and have had no assistance from anyone and would be very glad to do without entirely if I could, but I find I am unable to do so any longer. Therefore, I ask your advice whether I must apply for myself or the child. An answer will greatly oblige. Your humble servant, Joseph Fletcher, number two, Slater's Yard. That's the kind of source that we're dealing with. And that's the kind of intimate nature of the data within our collections in regard to welfare and what the poor might have thought. This is the mechanism by which they tell central government. Um, so I thought we'd, we'd start with that. Because it's quite an eye-opener and to, to think that intimate detail within central government records. Um, so now let's step back. Now that we kind of know the source and the kind of things that we might find here, let's just step back and think a little bit about maybe why we have those kind of intimate records. Not the local record office, but, but us. So, in 1832, a Royal Commission was set up to look at welfare and look at whether or not the old poor law, the parish relief, was the best way that welfare could be managed across England and Wales. Scotland and Ireland don't feature here. They have their own legislation. Their archives are held within their own, uh, they're in their own archives. So the Royal Commission of 1832 to 1834 examines across England and Wales the way in which welfare is managed and it makes a series of recommendations about how welfare should be managed in the future. The report is published in 1834 and most of the recommendations, not all but most of the recommendations, are on the statute book in the late summer of that year. And I just want to talk about this part of the report, it's a key part of the report, because what the report is looking at is expenditure on welfare is going up 
And it's been going up since the late 17th century. And this is regarded as hugely problematical. So what I'm going to do is going to read that out so that everyone at the back can, can get this. And, and just have a little bit of a chat about what that meant. The first and most essential of all conditions, a principle which we find universally admitted even by those whose practices are at variance with it, is that his situation, the pauper, pauper situation, on the whole shall not be made really or apparently so eligible as the situation of the independent labourer of the lowest class. What they mean by that. And it's at this point, I'm remembering this is a seminar rather than a lecture, so, Steve, could you just join me for a second? No, really. Okay. So, here is Steve. He is our pauper. <laughs> right? Not, not only are you poor, Steve, but you are, you are the poorest independent labourer of the lowest class. And what we're going to do, if you can stand against this wall, it doesn't sound as threatening as it, as it, it might sound, we, what, <coughs> what they're looking to do here is they're looking to measure, Steve, your standard of living. So they're going to take into account Steve's income, income in kind, not just wages, and then they're going to look at all your outgoings, like your rent, food, clothes, children, all of that. And we're going to measure that off. So there's your standard of living then, Steve. And what we're going to do is we're going to offer relief from now on below that. That's how we're going to get... Do you know I said the graph for expenditure is going up? That's how we're going to get it to go down. Because, and there's a contemporary thread of thought here, if Steve's standard of living on relief is higher than that of the independent labourer outside, then surely the independent labourer outside is going to make the same claim for relief as Steve. And the same, same coin as that is, from Steve's perspective, if, expenditure, if his standard of living is here, and the standard of living of the independent labourer outside is this, there is no motivation for Steve to look for work. So, thank you Steve. Thanks. So we're to get that illustration across of what they're, what they're looking to do. It's a kind of a quasi-scientific way of trying to say, if this is where people are, as independent labourers, we're going to make sure that the relief bill comes down by providing relief below that. We're going to provide relief below that. We're going to make welfare itself unattractive, and that will stop people claiming that relief. So, <clears throat> that's one of the key, key parts of the report, a really influential part of the the report from 1834. So that report is published in 1934. The Poor Law Amendment Act goes on the statute book. And what the Poor Law Amendment Act does is it sets up two new bureaucracies. It sets up one in London, the Poor Law Commission, and it sets up around the country hundreds of collections of poor law unions, like the map here. So prior to 1834, each of these little parishes would provide for its own poor. After 1834, these parishes here are brought together as a new unit of administration to manage relief locally. 
So there you've got this kind of the supervisory aspect, and here you've got the new local government units. So they're collections of parishes. So you can see there the, the, the list of parishes that make up the Newport Pagnell Union after 1834. Now, that does a couple of things. In terms of uh, the history side of it, we see that what the Poor Law Commission is charged with to undertake this new world of relief is it's charged with creating the first ever centrally supervised bureaucracy at a local level. It's going to create a lot of paperwork. It's going to create a massive amount of paperwork in regard to how relief is managed. And from a historian's perspective, that's both a fantastic thing, lots of source, it's also problematic. How do we get into that? How do, how do we get into this massive archive? This is from Anne Crowther. Uh, and Anne was writing in the early part of the 1980s. But she says, it, it, the, the poor law archive, voluminous, it's confusing. Thousands of volumes of correspondence between guardians and individual poor law authorities. The bulk of the documents at the public record office here and at the county archives don't a single researcher. Problematic aspect is this. No historian can consult more than a small number of them and he or she will not know whether the area they select is exceptional or quite normal. So what we have then, once the Poor Law Commission is set up in London in 1834 is illustrated by this slide. Imagine this is what you have. At Somerset House, you've got the Poor Law Commission, the central authority. The Poor Law Commission becomes the, law, the, the Poor Law Board. Later, it'll become the local board. But if we think of the central administration being based in London. And then you have hundreds of these Poor Law Unions across the country, represented here by Plan Buffling Workhouse. Um, so you have... Correspondence going from the Clanbuthlin Workhouse into Somerset House, and you have correspondence going from Somerset House back to Clanbuthlin. And that is a massive amount of information being shared by these two new bureaucratic government bodies, one local uh, and one national. So, let's see how this works. And for this, what I'd like to happen here. Jack, I'd like you to come down and follow. Yes. Oh, yes. David Langrish is smiling. What he doesn't realise, so I'm going to ask him to come down as well. Yeah? Every, everyone's now stopped smiling. Uh, but Keith, could you come down? Yeah, David? <coughs> if you could take a seat at those desks there. I want to illustrate how the archive is created... And how that archive is then kind of maintained. Because that's important for the piece of research we're, we're going to do. Okay. So, if I... You all right there? Not too bright, is it? Straight in your eyes. Right, okay. <laughs> so let's, let's imagine then that uh, Spencer, who's the clerk at the base of Poor Law Union, writes in to the Poor Law Commission and says, we've got a problem, and we don't know what the answer, we don't quite know what to do with this problem. So what we do, 
is that comes into the Parole Commission. And Jack, who is a, he's a senior, senior member of staff there, Jack, I've made you. He gets that. <coughs> and if I'm, if I'm Spencer, I just don't know the answer to this particular problem I've got. Um, we've got a pauper, here's the circumstances, how should we treat this individual? But Jack has seen loads of those examples. So Jack, you know exactly what to do. So what Jack's going to do is he's just going to turn over that. And he's just going to write there <coughs> on the corner of the paper, blah, 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 blah. And literally, Jack, that's all I need you to write. Blah, 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 blah. Because you know what the answer is. <coughs> what you're going to do now is you're going to pass that letter to Keith. Okay, Keith. Now, Keith is one of Jack's minions. Sorry, Keith. Um, <coughs> and what you're going to do is you are going to write on a new piece of paper yeah, a draft letter back to Spencer based on what Jack has written. Exactly. Exactly like that. Right. So what we now have is the incoming letter, Jack's annotations. We've now got a draft letter from Keith. Keith, and you pass your draft letter to David, who is one of your minions. Uh, fantastic. <laughs> so, so what Dave's going to do, um, David is going to write lovely Torian couplet. You can't do blah, 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 because you've got like, proper writing to do. You can. You can just write blah, blah, blah. But, but really neatly. Because this is the letter that's going to go back to Spencer. Okay. So Spencer, who initiated this, by saying we've got a pauper, there's a particular legal issue, we're not quite know, we don't quite know how to deal with this individual, they're not destitute, but on the other hand, they've maybe got mental health problems that means that they've got to be looked after and there's no we're not sure what to do. Okay, has David have you done that? Okay. David, can you give that? Now, I appreciate the work actually, that's very neat. And I, I appreciate the work that David has done there. However, it's unlikely that one survived. That one would have been sent back to Spencer. Um, and in the main, they don't survive. They don't survive. They're very small bureaucracies. Poor law unions are small bureaucracies. They don't have a lot of space in their respective offices. And therefore, every 10, 15, 20 years, the clerk will go to the guardians and say, my room is overflowing with paperwork. Can I get rid of the stuff from 15, 20, 30 years ago. So they don't tend to survive. But it's all right. Because what we do have, do we not, is the original incoming letter, the notes from Jack on what should be done, and the office copy. Because that's what that is. The draft is the office copy. And they will be with the incoming letter when they come in. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you. But it's just to try to illustrate how an archive is created. Because if we, if we know what's created and when, we can look for those. We can look for these things. Okay. So, as a kind of view, here is our letter that came in. There, Jack's turned it over. And you can see with some of the letters, you'll get several annotations. And then you get these things. These are the drafts. So this is what you were working on, Keith. And you can see you get these pre-printed letters 
drafted by, copied by, examined by, dispatched by. It's a huge bureaucratic uh, department, uh, central government. And then this becomes their record of the answer that they gave them. Now, in the 1840s, the Poor Law Commission say, we've got a problem. We've got that much paper. We've got so much paper, we're losing information. We're losing data. Not just the things that David wrote on, which I've scrunched up, but the, 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 the material that they're supposed to keep. So every time we sweep out the rooms, there's less paper when we go back in. We've, we've lost some. So we're losing the record of what we said people should be doing. So what they do, they purchase a bindery and they bind up this correspondence on a union-by-union basis. So this one is the base of Poor Law Union in Nottinghamshire um, for 1840. So they bound it up. And they do this at the time. Now, from a records management perspective, why is that important? Sorry? It all stays together. Can't weed that. Can't take out the ephemera later on. That's put together at the time. It's put together at the time. And that's important for this kind of research. For those of you who are familiar with the Home Office records, where you've got masses of stuff that's been weeded out, we have registers to things that don't survive because they were weeded out by Home Office officials in the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s. Not with ease. That's what they look like. So when you open them, it's like a book, but all of different sizes as the, the stuff has been put in. Okay. There's another big to be introduced here. This graph, I know some of you have seen this. This is MH1, MH2, MH3, MH4, all the way along. So MH1, it's actually 160-something, but I couldn't get them all on the, the graph. And what this graph represents in terms of scale is... This is MH106, and there are 5,456 pieces in that record series. It's a big series. It's a big series. This is MH48. 2,792 are in that series. That is MH12. Over 16,000, nearly 17,000 of those large doorstop size volumes unweeded are in the 19th century, MH12 records. It's a big series within its own right. It's big because the number of letters that are coming into the Pool Law Commission is also large. So we start off here, there's over 20,000. It never goes back to 20 odd thousand. You see here, as it just goes up and up and up, and if I continued the graph, we're going up here. It's a huge amount of information. It's part of the information state, and it's that part of the information state that addresses those at the very bottom of, of society, the, the poor and the paupers. When they set up the administrative system here, they expected, and, and got, most of the letters come from the clerk to the guardians, the local secretary, if you like, but they also expected that they would get letters from guardians themselves, medical officers, relieving officers, workhouse masters, auditors, and lots of other people. 
What I don't get a feeling for at the very beginning of this, they didn't expect that paupers and the poor themselves would write. I don't think they expected that. I don't think they expected that. But they did. And they wrote in their thousands. And they're inside that huge collection. There's different kinds of ego documents in there. And by ego documents, I mean where someone writes about themselves. It's about themselves. So this is the poor kind of writing about themselves. And I, I, I reckon there's, there's three different kinds of documents that you can come across in MH12 that kind of fit that bill of a, an ego document. First are these petitions, where you get multiple names, setting out a set of grievances and what they want to happen as a, as a result. So here we have uh, a petition from these gentlemen here. And they talk about the food. They talk about there's no indulgences allowed. And they talk about the chaplain being neglectful. So they set out, interestingly, and I think quite illuminating, they say here, maybe we need to talk to the Secretary of State about this. Maybe we're not talking to the right people here. Maybe we need to talk to the Home Secretary. About a slight threat thrown in at the end. This is another petition. This petition was sent to the Nottingham Review. But it was then... The, the subject of a major investigation by the poor law authorities in London. And as a result of it, those investigations are always bound up into MH12. Then you find these kind of petitions in here. You also find, as a part of this um, reports by assistant poor law commissioners who are investigating cases within workhouses, you get statements of individual paupers. So this is a statement by a man called John Cowles from Chipping Sodbury. I'm going to talk about him in a minute, so I'm just going to leave that there. So you get, you get petitions, you get these written statements, you also get these. And I'm just going to run through a few of them, just so we get a feel for what these pauper letters are like, and maybe some of the common themes that come up within them. So this is from John Cartwright from Woolstanton and Burslem, sort of in Staffordshire, to the Poor Law Board, 1848. He asks for an inquiry into alleged threatened workhouse violence. He says um, that he's been threatened by uh, William Stubbs, the baker. See there. He threatened to knock my bloody head off. Um, but for the sake of another union officer being there, he says he would have done that. And being threatened with physical violence is against the law and rules of the Poor Law Commission, Poor Law Board. This is something that shouldn't be happening, so I'm writing to you at the centre to let you know this is happening, and I now expect you to do something about this. And he asks um, that this is investigated. So in other words, he's aware of the process that the, the central authorities in London can send one of their inspectors to the workhouse to investigate that alleged verbal abuse. I am, gentlemen, you're obedient. Very devoted servant. Okay. This is a man called John Comp, I think, pronounced John Comp. We're at Poplar now, uh, in East London. 
1859, complaining about medical care. He talks about trusted inmates being left in charge of the sick poor. I think most people are aware of this idea of trustees within prisons. What he's saying is, is you have the same thing but within the workhouse system, that certain inmates are given certain jobs to do, certain tasks. They're trustees within the, the workhouse. It's very courteous, but he talks about the authorities perhaps investigating the state and usage of the poor, sick, and sore afflicted in this dark and neglected parish. He talks about the sick and afflicted being badly treated. Three inmates are in charge. They take every advantage of robbing the inmates. Little medical care is taken. The doctors rarely visit. The writer identifies himself as a cripple. He expects to be in the workhouse the rest of his life. And he says, can you not give my name to anybody? If you give my name to the local authorities, you will mark me out. Of course, they immediately pass it to the local authorities. Because the process is you give those back to the local authorities and you ask them to investigate. That's the mechanism by which this uh, occurs. I'm just going to go through a couple quickly before we move on. Daniel Dixon, Hungerford, writes to the Poor Law Commission in 1845, describes ill-treatment, pauper deaths through want and neglect, and he says paupers are punished for complaining. If we try to raise a complaint, that itself marks you out. That can mark you out. Um, and he says, I fought for my country, worked hard for a living, now I am starving with hunger, unable to earn it. What am I to do? I am both ill and helpless. And he says, those who complained are met with ill treatment from the governor, taken before a magistrate and committed to prison. And that is part of the disciplinary process within workhouses. You can be disciplined by the workhouse authorities, but you can also be taken to local magistrates. I've looked at a lot of this in Sutherland, Nottinghamshire, where the guardians are the magistrates. So effectively, as, as guardians, they pass the pauper to themselves, but with the magistrate's hat on. Uh, and that idea of a pauper who complains can be then punished is, is, a, is a theme that you find um, within the, the letters. This is from John Finn, and he talks about ill treatment, poor dietaries, early and inhumane deaths. And he makes the same case. You know, there are no official mechanisms for making complaints. Any paupers complaining are punished for insolence. It's considered insolent to complain, and therefore you find yourself in this um, particular place. So we see within the letters, there are kind of themes that emerge there um, within the correspondence. The last one I want to finish on as an example, before I move to some kind of conclusions here, I said this one here about John Cowles, and this is his written statement, it's a sworn statement to an investigation. The background to this case, and it is a case, there's a mass of correspondence around this. It says the food, uh, the food is poor in the workhouse. Bacon and cheese very bad. We have dripping instead of butter. No butter was used in the nine months that, that he was there. And what he does is he asks to leave the workhouse. Now the workhouse is a uniform environment, so he asks for his clothes. His clothes are refused him. So what he does 
So he decides to nip over the wall in his union uh, uniform. And he takes with him a collection of the food that's on offer locally, part of the welfare offer at the time. And he goes to see a magistrate called William Meyerhouse at Bristol. It's about 11 miles away. It's a good, it's a good way if you're thinking you're going to be walking this. When he gets back, um, one of the relieving officer, one of the relieving officers meets him, calls him names. Ten minutes later, two policemen come, take him to the station house, then to a magistrate at Horton, and he's committed for six weeks to jail, to hard labour. And the charge is theft. Technically, he's gone in his workhouse uniform. And that doesn't belong to him, it belongs to the union. So they get him, if get is the right word, they get him um, on that. Here is the journey he makes. So he starts off from here. What he says in his statement is that he gets part of the way by cart and part by walking. And this is where he meets the magistrates. And then he comes all the way back. However, William Myhouse, the magistrate that he meets, is unhappy that Cowles is imprisoned for six weeks. He writes to the Poor Law Commission. And he says, I believe every person who was in the room, the other magistrates with him, thought it unfit to be given to a human being. The fact that Cowles is sent to prison utterly precludes a pauper from making a complaint before a magistrate, before the justice. So we get now this investigation of which all of these papers are placed together about that lived experience of the poor. This then is a draft letter. So this is the, the office copy of a letter that was sent out to the workhouse master saying you've exceeded your authority in this. Not only that, but the Home Office provides Cowles with a pardon and Cowles is released. So in terms of agency we can see the activity of poor people having an impact. Now, I'm going to close with this particular letter because I think here we also have another impact letter. This is a letter from Thomas Henshaw who appeals to the Poor Law Commission for assistance. Um, I won't go through this in the massive detail that I thought I might. Um, But he says here um, he would... He would seek redress, not charity, redress. Something has gone wrong. I expect you to put it right. Again, he talks here about being completely destitute of food since February the 1st. And he's writing on February the 5th. He also says that I have applied to Mr. Bennett, the assistant overseer, and he refused. He was refused leave by Bennett. He was refused relief by Mr. Stoughton, the relieving officer. And he's writing now into the Poor Law Commission to say, I have done the right things. I've done the things you said I should do. I've made my application, but I have been refused relief on each occasion. And I'm now asking you to do something about it. And he quotes Section 54 of the Poor Law Amendment Act. And he says... In, ter- in, in, in urgent necessity, relief should be given. And he's quite right. And this isn't the first or only letter I've seen from paupers where they quote the law back to the Poor Law Commission or the authorities in, in London. It seems 
quite a common strategy uh, of the poor. And at first when I saw this, quite surprised. I thought, how would, how would they know that? But when you reflect back on it, you think, who's going to know the rights of the poor if not the poor themselves? They have so few rights, it's surely important that they know what those rights are. And in fact, we then find on the out-relief lists, uh, where is he? There he is, Thomas Henshaw, and Elizabeth, his wife, and his children. So in terms of agency, his intervention, his letter-writing, has delivered what he wanted in terms of agency of the poor. Now, okay, that's fine, that's all very good, it's all very interesting. But if those were the only letters that we could find, I'm not quite sure how historically important that would be. So we've done some pilot work on this. So we started to go through, union by union, volume by volume, picking out individual letters from the poor. Real research, proper research, real archival, intuit research. Got a couple of graphs for you. So this is York. So starting at 1841, moving through to 1859, small clutch of around 30, 30 letters across a couple of couple of decades. Now, my feeling of this is that union by union, we're going to have real differences. This, for example, this is Basford. This is Basford. If we, if we move that graph into decades, get that. And that, again, undermined all of my assumptions. My assumptions were that actually this is the area where we'd have most letters the beginning of the new poor law, when it's not quite embedded yet, when there's a lot of mistakes that are going to be made. But in fact, as you can see, the 1860s is the decade where the majority of letters written by the poor come in. And that has to be explained. That has to be explained. What we find in the letters are allegations of verbal threats, of physical violence towards paupers, that, those graphs represent these, these things. There's a replacement of paid work with punishment work for paupers. There's complaints that paupers are provided with neither sufficient food nor medical assistance. There's that recurring thing that we saw in the letters we've just had a quick look at, where they are punished if complaints was made to paid officer. Complaints seen as you know, the saucy pauper, the, the insolent uh, pauper. And therefore, can end up being punished. And in fact, see their complaints turned into criminal cases. Notwithstanding that, though, people were more than willing to raise, either with their union or with the poor law commissioners or the poor law board, a whole series of complaints about being denied relief, about having their relief cut. Complaints about the poor suffering medical neglect at the hands of medical or relieving officers. Or ill treatment. Ill treatment, whether that's verbal or physical uh, abuse of the poor. So we've set ourselves, as part of the project, a series of research questions to pull out some of the themes from those pauper letters of that project in their own right. So we have some key questions that we want to, to look at. And 
this is around what impact did the letters from paupers and poor people have on local and central poor loan authorities. Did it change policy, either at a national level or at a local level? Do we see local policies change as a result of this? Because one of the things that I can tell you is that the local authorities do not like getting letters from the central authorities saying, can you explain this, please? They really don't, they don't see that interference as something to be encouraged. They don't like that. Secondly, what rhetorical mechanisms did paupers and poor people use in their letters? How, how, did, they, how did they verse themselves? How did they, how did they do this? Are they, are they, are they blunt? Are they, are they quite uh, respectful as they, are, as they are talking to the Poor Law Commission? How, what kind of rhetorical mechanisms do they deploy? And how will the information, if we cull this information from, from hundreds of letters, from thousands of letters, how will that affect the historiography of the 19th century kind of welfare history? Because what we're looking to do is a, is a history of welfare from below. And that's frankly not something that's happened yet. And I think part of the reason for that is the source itself hasn't been really recognised. Because it's in with those huge volumes. And you've got to wade through all of those to get to maybe three or four letters per volume. There are a series of sub-questions there, which I can go into in questions and answers if people want to at a later state, but it's who wrote them and did this change over time? Did the poor law authorities engage with paupers? In other words, we saw there how they got back to a particular clerk of a poor law commission. Would they get back to a pauper? Would they engage? Or would they simply say, do you know what? He's an inmate at such and such a workhouse. We don't have to respond. We don't have to do that. So we've got a series of primary questions and sub-questions as, as part of the research programme. One of the ways that we're going to try to do this, and this is perhaps useful as this is kind of big ideas, is that we're aware that we are actually going to find thousands of letters. We're going to find thousands of letters. How are we going to quantify some of this as a research team? How, how, can, we, how can we put this together? So we're going to use a piece of software for part of this called Wordsmith. And what, I don't know if people are familiar with Wordsmith, but it allows you to do a number of things. And what we're going to use it for is it will search through, because we're going to transcribe all of the letters. Want that? We're going to transcribe all of the letters. You can put this then through a piece of software. And it will start counting the number of words and variants of words. So things like starve, starving, starved, it will kind of go through those and find those and produce some graphs or tables and statistics around certain keywords within the letters. It will look for combinations of words and phrases within and between letters. So it will look for those kind of words, but it will also say this number of letters, they don't have anything like that within them. So you can do some comparative work. The other thing that it will do is it will look for the position of certain words and phrases. So if it picks up words like dignity or rights or kind of other words that, that mean that, it'll look for, well, where in the letters do those phrases and words come up? Because if it starts, so, so if words like dignity and rights appear at the end of a letter, kind of a bit like a punchline, essentially that is please help me. Please help me. If it comes at the very beginning of a letter, 
then those letters tend to be far more strident in their approach. You as administrators of relief are quite worthless. You're not very good. You're not getting back to my original correspondence. So part of the way that we're going to do the research is through uh, Wordsmith. Now, I hope, because this is my last slide, I hope what you feel is, that's quite interesting. That's, it's quite interesting looking at that from underneath because we, we have some of that going on today about you know, how hospitals are, are functioning, those that don't, those that are very poor at kind of opening up to patients and their families when things go wrong. Many hospitals close down at that point. They're unsure what to do. Uh, and they're aware, they're aware now with litigation that it can be very, very expensive. But I want to say that it's more than interesting. I think it's important, and I think it's important for two reasons. First is in terms of the history, that people were not passive. People were interested in their own lives. They took note, and where they felt they could... They challenged people, and they challenged people who were very, very powerful. If you are a pauper in Woolstanton and Burslem, or Basford, or Kew in the 19th century, and you are writing to the Pool or Commission, or the Pool or Board in London, these are powerless people in many ways, talking to very powerful people. But it indicates their agency when you find cases that work out after their intervention where it works out that what they asked for, what they sought is ceded to them that they are active participants in history I think the other reason why I think it's important is when you ask the question well where did the poor go where did, we talk about the poor in the 19th century where, where did they go and they didn't go anywhere because they're still here there are still poor people I don't know if people saw the exchange between Frank Field and I think Heidi Alexander in the Commons a little while ago, where they were saying, you know, here are some of my constituents' problems. You know, they're, they're not getting their benefits on time. Children are crying because they've got no food. You know, these, these things are still here. Whether we talk about what happened at Grenfell, that's another part in which these kind of issues get worked out, but in a contemporary mode. So I think it's not just interesting, although I find it it's not just interesting I think it's important important from the historic point of view and also from the contemporary point of view so with that I'll stop there and I'll just say thank you very much for coming on thank you very very much this podcast is copyright to the National Archives all rights reserved it is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence 